Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. This is Saqib, your host. And today uh, we'll be talking a lot of cricket and maybe some tennis at the end. Uh, but cricket is in the air and uh, who better to have uh, Paul Dennett from Australia joining for a chat as the series is pretty, uh, it's heated up. India has uh, won the first test. Hey, Paul. Hey, Saqib. How are you going? Uh, it's, it's good. I know you've been pretty, you've been predicting uh, throughout Twitter and even in other podcasts that India would be the favorites to win this uh, their first series in Australia. I had uh, other reservations. I thought Australian bowling would just rise to the occasion. But uh, guess what? You know, India have been victorious in Adelaide. And now the Perth Test match is starting in a couple of hours from now. And uh, by the time this show is aired, the match would be in full flight or maybe even over. So we'll try to keep this conversation on a large scale. Uh, not that time sensitive. So whoever's tuning in by the time the show is on air, uh, can enjoy the conversation. So on that note, uh, Paul, there has been a lot of talk before the series started. What is the Australian way of cricket? Michael Clark made some comments and a lot of current players. And, uh, there, there was a, some debate in Australian circles. And uh, this is coming on the aftermath of uh, you know what we know transpired in South Africa. And uh, there was a big introspection of Australian cricketing culture. And now, uh, as, as someone who's followed this scene pretty closely and even the pulse of Australian cricket, uh, are you... Are you okay with with the aggression uh, that's been associated? Because uh, if you take it out, you're also losing some of the identity. Of course, there's a line that needs not to be crossed. But what are we talking about when uh, Clark mentions Australian culture and gets a lot of uh, uh, not good responses from fans and media? What's your take on that? It's an old topic, but I still think it's not going to die off anytime soon. Well, I think that the actual cricket culture at the highest level in Australia has often been at odds with the actual societal culture that Australians tend to be proud of our um, sportsmanship and being gracious in the way that we play sport. And I think that our national cricket team has in recent years not always reflected that. And I think that if you go to a, a game of first grade cricket around Sydney and if you had this, if they had stump mics there and you listened to them, you'd be absolutely amazed at the level of vitriol that goes on. And I don't think that's typical of the rest of Australian society. So I disagree with Clark and I disagree with people who say that they're, that it's impossible to uh, be nice guys and to win. Um, I think that you've just got to look at, at tennis, for example, that Federer, no one would accuse Federer of being anything other than extraordinarily competitive, yet he behaves with all the grace that you would expect. Same with Nadal and same with most tennis players these days. I don't know why the cricketers can't be like that. So I've always said, bowl bounces, um, smash the ball to the boundary, dive hard, uh, be intimidating in the way that you play the game, uh, but there's no need for send-offs, there's no need for sledging, um, and I, I don't see that there's any um, discrepancy there. No, I, I agree with you, and this is, again, like I said, this is an old conversation, and, you know, it's getting more momentum uh, with uh, how Australians are, you know, putting this whole culture uh, in retrospect, and there's this is a debate, and I'm not saying, you know, some of the banter, you know, is is part of the sport. But even in American sport, I realize I've lived a good part of 22 years in the States. And uh, when Jordan was playing basketball or LeBron and now even NFL, I'm sure there's a lot of, a lot of banter that goes on. And, but cricket and tennis are like two more gentlemanly sports, uh, sport. And that's why we, a lot of time, you know, have this uh, self-induced bar of uh, fair play and what's the line and what's not the line. So while I'm totally fine that, you know, sometimes it does go over, board but at the same time uh monitoring you know 
this or policing this is also i think going overboard because we live in an era in my opinion when everything uh, can be or anything can be magnified into something big and uh, if australia starts winning again uh, i think this can take a little bit of a back seat uh, but i think i i differ in your opinion because federer is playing an individual sport but before federer there was nastasi and mackendro and becker some very strong personalities and they drew uh, big crowds as well because uh, no two players should be same uh, that's my opinion well it's going to be interesting if australia end up not having a particularly good summer that a lot of people will say that it's because that the aggression has been dialed down and i would say well if we don't have a particularly good summer it's because we're up against the number one side in the world we're missing our two best players and we are probably at a little bit of a low ebb in terms of our own talent so i would also argue that the aggression we showed in south africa is demonstrably was negative in the sense that abid avilias was probably playing without the passion that he once had and then all of a sudden when he received an almighty send off from a Nathan Lyon dropping the ball on him and then David Warner mocking um Markram for for having AB de Villiers run out it was as though that galvanized his resolve and he played like Bradman for the rest of that series that the entire um ball tampering thing may never have occurred if Warner and de Kock hadn't started things off at the start with Warner going at de Kock and that the, the relations between the sides had um degenerated to such an extent so maybe if we'd had a more gracious attitude in south africa we um would have had a a lesser performance from ab de villiers and would now have our two best players still available to play against india and that's that's quite an interesting topic and 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 many friends of mine who who discuss cricket on a regular basis had the same notion what would have happened if those two or one of those two especially smith was available because uh india won the match and they should have won rather more convincingly but in the end it was a 31 run win and uh in in hindsight and you know you can always say if smith was there it would have been a different series so uh with that being said uh what do you what do you think of uh, you know some of the conversation that's surrounding uh like virat kohli celebrations anil gavaskar had to uh of course indian media asked him and he said kohli doesn't swear but justin langer said if an aussie was caught doing that uh you know it would be drawing a different reaction so how's kohli being received in australia i know i've i've asked this before this time he's bigger than he's larger than life figure he's you know rightly the right the best batsman in the world coming into the series so how is australian public and media treating some of his uh, feisty persona- personality that stays on the pitch because he's definitely grown into something more mature but what's your take on uh, langer's comment and b how's kohli being received this time around <laughs> Well firstly with regard to Langer's comment I think there's some truth in that but it's Australia's brought it upon themselves that if you've consistently rightly or wrongly to some degree but if you've consistently been regarded as the side in world cricket that's most likely to 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 sledge and engage in send-offs then you know you've got to expect that if that there's going to be a different standard applied to you than there would be to to other nations and obviously India are perfect and that that sometimes they've gone um you know crossed the, that famous line as well but that's the the bed that australia have made as far as the 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 reaction for kohli he is being treated like a superstar that uh, he everything he does is um you know he's the the number one personality of the summer i think most australians regard him as a phenomenal cricketer and that they respect his aggression and respect his uh, passion and think that it's the right way to play and maybe occasionally that he probably goes a little bit too far but that um that kind of you'd rather him going too far than not far enough so 
I, I think that it'll be interesting to see what he does in the remaining three test matches because he has had a little bit of a form slump against Australia and I think that we all think that won't last, whether it's in Perth or whether it's in the rest of the series that he's going to uh, explode into his full potential, then um, let's wait and see. But the other thing is that if he were to... Um, fire up about something that probably didn't require firing up, then I think he would cop a bit of a backlash. Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, I dropped uh, the connection for a second. So let, let's resume the conversation. Uh, so let me ask you this about uh, Virat Kohli. Uh, how is his captaincy being perceived? Uh, you know, India was convincing winners. Uh, there's always been a question mark. Even some of Indian critics have said his team selection and overall captaincy and feel uh, is slightly below, you know, his world-class batsmanship. Do you see any growth in how he's approached this first test already? Um, I think that as far as his tactics on field, I'd make the same criticism of him that I, t- I would probably make of most modern-day captains and I think they do put the field out too early and that they are willing to concede a single to deep point where, um, you know, people like Ian Chappell would eloquently explain how it's just the wrong way of going about things, that you'd be far better off occasionally copying the odd boundary but having a catching position at deep point and stopping those singles off good balls. That aside, I think the only other thing that I would question is what you don't want as people in the side feeling is under fear. I would hate to be standing at second slip knowing that if I dropped a catch, I was going to cop an absolute barrage from Coley because you try as hard as you can, you don't need to be feeling as though if you do something wrong, you're going to be censured for it. And I don't know whether he is that character or not. He seems like he's someone who's very loyal of his players. He demands high standards, and that's great, as long as he recognises that from time to time people are going to make errors. Other than that, I think he's the best Indian captain um, that I've seen, and I think that um, his just uh, will to win and his determination um, take him a long way. Mm. Interesting. So I know my next question may seem like I'm tap dancing between topics, but one more on Kohli. Uh, since his growth in uh, in the in, in captaincy role is uh, you know is, is you know we can't ignore that he's definitely growing into the role and uh, maybe there's still some room uh, here and there for improvement but his uh, off off the field uh, I think maturity is reflecting especially with the interview he had with Adam Gilchrist and I think if it, in 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 the uh, in the world of fans of any sport fences could be mended right away when Kohli I think over, gave a very thoughtful and compassionate answer regarding. Uh, uh, Steve Smith and David Warner, how they were treated after the aftermath. So there's definitely some growth there because him and Smith are pretty intense rivals. But there was, uh, you know, I guess uh, that that statement that had a lot of empathy uh, didn't justify, you know, the actions. But the aftermath, Kohli, you know, was pretty outspoken. Yeah, and I think that's really good to see. And that the IPL was the first to, to bring these, uh, to start to bridge these barriers because being an example of a tournament that has bridged these barriers where players are in the same dressing room who've previously been against each other. And they're a lot more similar than they might think because they... um, So I think with tournaments like the IPL, they're the first to bridge the gap between different players from different countries who've previously been in different dressing rooms and thought that they were ogres. And then when suddenly you're playing for the same side, you realise that you've got a lot more in common than you think. And I think it's great that Coley has um, expressed some empathy with Steve Smith and I, the other thing about Coley that I really admire is I think with his passion for That's winning right. abroad, he is helping the brand of test cricket in struggling times, that people in India um, and around the world who are focused mainly on T20 cricket will see that the, the most famous player in the world clearly wants to do well in the, the oldest and most 
traditional form of the game. And I think that is excellent for, uh, for Test cricket. And I really am delighted by his passion for it. No, I agree. Uh, definitely for the health of Test cricket, you need a strong India and you need a strong Virat Kohli. And, uh, and again, I think this at the fan level, uh, you know, T20 has really, you know, gained popularity. But if you talk to the some of the biggest names in cricket, be it Joe Root and, of course, you know, the Australian culture and Virat Kohli and even, uh, you know, there, there are guys like Pujara. You know, there are a lot of people who still value Test cricket more. So it's good to see, definitely, coming from the biggest poster boy of cricket, if Kohli values, and this is going to be a historic moment if uh, India can, you know, hold on to this lead. Still a lot of cricket to be played. So let's talk about Pujara. Uh, you know, like... Kohli not scoring a heap of runs and India still winning the first test. That's probably the best sign for this Indian team because there were always question marks for Pujara and Rahane how they would find form uh, on this important tour. And now everybody's talking about the grit of Pujara, the old school batting and uh, the theory for strike rate has been thrown out in test cricket. It didn't belong in my opinion, but it was not leaving Pujara's shadow for quite some time. But now it's becoming so good in the first test. Do you think he could be, you know, uh, the dark horse who comes good here and just uh, maintain his form. Again, uh, predicting is hard, but what you saw in Adelaide uh, must give Pujara and his fans a lot of confidence. And uh, he's another guy Australia needs to be worried about now. Definitely. And I think that he's someone that I enjoy seeing do well. I really was a, a bit puzzled that he was left out of the first test match of the, the tour that was done of England just le- just recently. I admire the fact that he um, played several games of county cricket before that first test. He didn't have much success at the county level, but um, when he did get a go, he didn't have the greatest second test match, worked hard and then started to flourish a little bit later on in the series. And I think that yeah, that's what you need. You need you can't just be a one-man one side. And I think that with Pajara in the side, Australia are going to be fearful of him all summer long, and he's a good balance to the more aggressive players, particularly if uh, Vahari gets a game and if Shaw gets a game along with Punt, that you've got a, a very nice balance of the Indian side, some real out-and-out dashes, and uh, Pajara playing, as you say, the old-fashioned way. Hmm. And now uh, another man who's been doing, uh, you know, the musical chair route in Indian cricket, especially Test cricket, is Rohit Sharma. He's a very proven uh, member of the white ball Indian side, but he came back here in this reckoning because of his ability to play horizontal shots. And uh, uh, in the first innings in, in Adelaide, he you know he was trying to dominate uh, the bowling and got to a quick 37, and then he threw away his wicket. And uh, once a team wins a test match, you really don't change. Uh, even Virat Kohli doesn't change much, you know, the batting lineup, but uh, Sharma is injured. Do you think that's a missed opportunity? Because Hanuma Vihari comes in in, uh, in, in the Perth test most likely. And... Uh, now, you know, the whole position is again up for grabs. And Vihari did score a 50 in England. Not sure how familiar are you with his batting. Uh, so some comments on that. I think it's a massive opportunity lost to Sharma. And, um, you know, he, if you're injured, you can't really do much about that. But I think that Vihari is not a player that I would be wanting to give an opportunity for if I was trying to hold down a spot. Because I, I watched that test match in England and he had a little bit of – he showed a little bit of ability. But um, I think that um, um, if the – um, first-class record that he has has anything to go by, then um, he, he's potentially a tremendous player. I mean, I, I don't know much, how much you've seen of him, but to average almost 60 in first-class cricket, having played a fair few matches, plus he can bowl some handy spin, um, then you know, I, I think he's an exciting option for India. Yeah, let's uh, let's see how he you know grabs this chance. You know, he already has a 50 in his 
belt. And even though that was a dead rubber, but it was not a dead rubber for Vihari. He had to prove his medal and he he earned this trip to Australia, I guess, by scoring that 50. Uh, and Ajinkya Rahane is another guy who four years ago was uh, India's second best batsman on the store along with Kohli. And uh, his, he had a pretty pedestrian test season. I think he's averaging 28 uh, before the Adelaide test. Uh, and he's not part of uh, the coloured clothing cricket anymore, at least uh, for now. So he's again, uh, right now, is part of only the test team. And uh, he came good in the second essay. And uh, that should give him some confidence and also Kohli and Shastri some belief that the runs are coming from other blades than just Virat Kohli. It's a real worry for Australia that I was looking last time they were down here that um, Rahane looked like he was going to be a, a real superstar at test level. And he has had some success, but hasn't quite reached the levels that I thought he would. So um, the, the last thing Australia needs is for him to be informed. So his 70 in the second innings in Adelaide was, um, you know, as I said, <laughs> the last thing that I wanted as an Australian fan, that it's as though as India is gradually starting to tick all of the boxes all the way down their batting order. Of course, uh, you know, the touring Indians had, have had their, you know, uh, concerns coming in, but now for the first time they're 1-0 in, 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 a, in a demanding uh, away tour and Australia is the place you would want to do it because India-Australia does get a lot of hype uh, no matter what, uh, you know, uh, what cricket market you are. This is like one of the biggest rivalries. So that being said, this Indian team, again, you don't, you don't want to take anything away from the win. It's not their fault that Smith and Warner are not there. But is this Australian attack uh, better than the attack uh, Kohli and Dhoni, those guys faced in 2014 when... Uh, Ryan Harris and Mitchell Johnson are still part of uh, the Australian colours. So how would you break down the two attacks? It's, a, it's an interesting one because I think that Ryan Harris, um, he didn't play all that many matches and he only really got to go towards the end of his um, the, end, the end of his career. I think he's the best of the lot and it's a pity that he didn't get a, a, an opportunity to play more test matches because I think, I think if he did, if I was to be picking an all-time Australian side for, say, the last 30 years... It's hard to pick him because he, he didn't play enough matches. But if he kept that record up, then he would have been up there along with McGrath and um, and Dennis Lilly in terms of that's how good I thought he was. Mitchell Johnson, always his career was it was so hard to predict. At his best, um, he's better than all of them. But then when he got a bit pedestrian, he was um, not quite so good. Um, the, the current attack on paper are, are excellent. And it's just that I think that... When they're absolutely firing, they are the best attack in the world along with South Africa. But they seem to, if they're 10% off, they seem to quickly become a little bit um, pedestrian. I think that's because they rely on, you know, really hitting the wicket hard and gaining effort out of the pitch. And that's the sort of thing that um, can fall away quite quickly. So I still think that Stark, Cummins and Hazelwood in prospect are a very fine attack. What I'm concerned about is that when you compare them to, say, Bumrah, Sharma and, let's say, Shami, that at their best, I think the Australians are probably slightly better, but not much. And if they're anything short of their best, then I think the Indian attack really comes into things. And I'm, I'm convinced this is the best bowling attack India have ever brought to Australia by a long way. Yeah, I think uh, my next question is coming for Mitchell Stark. And before I... Uh begin to ask the question, let's throw that stat, that crazy stat, the first 12 or 25 overs in the test, I think, when in the first day, the average speed was 146 or something. That's a crazy number. Uh, so Australian quicks were going all out and, you know, they got the four Indian batsmen out and then the Pujara inning started. But sticking with Mitchell Stark, 
uh, Sanket, you know, who you've spoken to on a podcast and is a regular on our podcast here. Uh, so he kind of schooled me by saying, you know, some of Stark's uh, uh, statistics are quite deceptive. He's, uh, I don't want to use the word like he's, you know, a merchant who's feasting on tail enders, but he's definitely not uh, the spearhead that Pat Cummins has become. Uh, even though I believe Stark has more wicket-taking deliveries, but I was, again, uh, corrected rightfully by a couple of other folks uh, who, you know, who who have good analysis to back this up, that Stark is kind of wayward and uh, his numbers are inflated. Uh, he's, you know, he definitely has a good Yorker, but overall he's not someone who's likely to trouble top orders in the world uh, compared to Pat Cummins or even Josh Hazelwood. So what's your tale, uh, What's your take on the talented Mitchell Stark? You think he's overrated? Of course, he's very young, can rectify. Numbers are still great. But you think he's uh, he's coming in with some doubt in this test because uh, everybody's talking about his performance in Adelaide? Well, I think overall you look at his record. He has a bowling average in test cricket of 28.3 before this Perth Test match, which is is good. It's not a great level, but it's at the level, looking at other Australian bowlers, roughly, of people like Craig McDermott, uh, Jeff Thompson, um, Merv Hughes. They're very, 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 very solid at that level. His strike rate of 50.2 um, is, I believe, the best strike rate of any Australian fast bowler who's taken 100 wickets or more. It's slightly better than Glenn McGrath. I mean, I think that is... That's a key number. That that's a very very good number. Um, I, I don't think that he is necessarily at his best. I think he was a little bit um, wayward, as people have said in in Adelaide. Shane Warne has today come out and given him a, a a large dose of criticism. And look, I think that won't endear um, Shane Warne to Mitchell Stark, but it might be a good thing because um, I, what I would like to see is Stark just slow down a little bit, get his rhythm, get his accuracy, and then every now and again really unleash with a ball. But he doesn't need to bowl every ball as fast as he can. And I think that – and I've banged on about this for ages. I think Australia values out-and-out pace too much. We look. We should look at the best bowler we've had in recent years is Glenn McGrath by a mile. And he was quick enough but not that quick that if you're bowling at 150 k's an hour and you're sacrificing accuracy, players like Coley and Pajara will just laugh at you. You need to be accurate before anything else. So I'd love to see Stark in Perth bowl very accurately, take advantage of the the conditions and every now and again slip himself and bowl a quicker one and maybe the criticism that he's copped from Adelaide will help him do that. Let me ask you this. Uh, We talk about batsmen, uh, you know, losing their identity, you know, because there are three formats going on. Even KL Rahul is a classic example. He was uh, very... uh, sophisticated, you know, in his defense. And, you know, he, he scored a lot of runs in domestic cricket before he made his debut, then came and scored 100 in Sydney last time India was around. And then he uh, had a successful IPL. And uh, now, you know, for an opening batsman, he's playing uh, quite differently, if you want to say it politely. Like he's, you know, there's a lot of questions surrounding him. So you think a bowler can go the same way because uh, there's so much cricket being played. They kind of uh, have to identify what lines work for or what lengths work for what format and Mitchell Stark as talented as he is you know he's definitely a great uh, white ball bowler but uh, in the test format you know he's not as consistent as some of the premier bowlers like Rabada and Cummins I think it's actually it's a good point I think that that people always talk about the challenges the batsmen face changing formats but it must be difficult as a bowler whereas if you imagine this series 20 years ago Stark would have played three or four Sheffield Shield games after having had a winter of not doing all that much and would have been bowling over after over after over of typical red ball cricket. And that would have had to help get him into peak condition. As it is, he's been playing 
Um, you know, lots of white ball games, uh, bowling on sort of unfriendly wickets for fast bowlers in the UAE. It's not the ideal preparation, and I suppose that's just the way it is in the modern world. But you look at some of the great bowlers of, the, of yesteryear, bowlers like Courtney Walsh, who just loved bowling, 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 overs after, over after over in, in red ball cricket and got, really got into a rhythm. Park is never really going to get that opportunity. So one of the skills of modern cricket that you've got to be able to switch formats. And, um, you know, he hasn't played much shield cricket this summer. Uh, he may well be better for that first test match with a few overs under the belt. Uh, you know, we're talking after the the first few days of the Perth Test match will have will have been played out when people listen to this. But I'm optimistic that he can he can do a pretty good job. In- if if Australia doesn't do well in this Test match and Stark especially is under the gun, what's Australian pace attacks bench looking like? I heard the name Siddle come back, and then uh, is Jackson Bird still a contender somewhere? Just fill us uh, fill the audience here. Uh, what's uh, ben- bench strength? Who who are some of the names if Mitchell Stark doesn't perform and if there are desperate measures? to bring uh, a new pacer if Australia doesn't win this test? Uh, who are some of the candidates? Well, probably the first cab off the rank would be Chris Tremaine. Now, he is in, he's is in. he been in and around the squeeze in the squad for the first test match um, but didn't play. Uh, he's not like Stark, so you wouldn't be changing like for like. So I suppose if Hazelwood was to be injured, then I think Tremaine would probably be the favourite to, to replace him. But if, if, say, Stark was to not be featuring in the Melbourne Test match. I think Tremaine probably would be the, still the first um, first cab off the rank. He's, um, he's got a pretty good record in first-class cricket. Um, he's got a bowling average of under 24. He has been uh, one of the leading performers in the Sheffield Shield the last few years, and he is just that kind of um, medium-fast bowler who's accurate and, and relies on a little bit of guile rather than out-and-out pace. Um, Siddle's been in the squad, I, I and mean, he'd always do a decent job. I don't think he'll probably feature in the 11 um, this summer, but you never know. Uh, Jackson Bird seems to have probably, unfortunately for him, when he did get the opportunity last year in the Ashes, got the flattest pitch of all time, and that was um, a pretty hard thing for him to have to deal with. But I think he's probably taken a little bit of a, um, a backward step as a result of that. There's also James Pattinson and uh, Jason Berendorf, who are – um, bowlers, if they'd not had injuries, who I think would have featured much more heavily in Test cricket. And I think both of them are making their way back now, but gingerly and slowly. And I think this current series might be a little bit too early for them to be considered. But they'd be um, some of the others that we've got as bench, bench strength as well. There's Jai Richardson, who um, is someone, if you followed the Big Bash, you would have seen a bit of. Um, he bowls pretty fast and... He would have been someone I would have considered for Perth because he just actually broke uh, Nick Maddinson's arm in a first-class game at the MCG, and not the um, you know not the kind of prospect I would have been wanting to face on a very fast Perth wicket. So he'd be someone that would come into consideration as well. Interesting. So yeah, let's uh, let's switch now quickly uh, the gears for Australian batting. That's been that's never been the Achilles heel, but this is a different unit. Like Langer said. It's not for the lack of trying. It's just some of the guys are inexperienced, and guys like Finch, who are experienced elsewhere, haven't had the you know prolific chances or scoring runs in the red ball format. And uh, he had a decent trip to UAE, but right now he looked pretty pedestrian for an opener. But you know we should not discard him uh, or, or judge him after one test. So, and I know we spoke a couple months ago about how he scored an average of forty-eight. In, in the last four years in the Sheffield Shield or the, or the red ball. But Sanket was saying those numbers came in at number four. But I know you don't believe in position. You think a top-order batsman can either open or can bat at five. So are you still holding on to that mantra when you're going to back 
uh, Aaron Finch or uh, what's your take on that, Paul? Oh, I, I think that Finch definitely, as things currently stand, deserves to be in the side. Um, my, my position on batting order is that it's not as important as some people make it out to be, but um, I, I, I don't say it's completely irrelevant. And I think that there would have been an argument to allowing Kawaja to open in this match to give him more opportunity to face the quicks and to push, to push Finch um, a little bit down the order. So, A, he's not having to deal with the new ball as much, and B, if he then did have to bat with the tail, I think he would really appreciate the freedom that that would um, give him. Um, I, I, I hope that Finch can get some runs here because if he does fail badly in both innings in Perth, then all of a sudden his position will come under under intense scrutiny. We're at a bit of a low ebb for batsmen at the moment. I personally would have Maxwell on the side. I'd have uh, Matt Renshaw on the side. Um, and I think that people possibly have some other favourites that they'd be wanting to pick as well. But there's not anyone who's really been belting the door down, averaging 55 in the Sheffield Shield, demanding a spot. And obviously taking out Smith and Warner and Bancroft, who would possibly figure in the side as well, it's exposed the fact that we are not in the batting strength that we have had in years gone by. Someone like David Hussey never played a test match, averaged in the the 50s in first-class cricket, would literally be the first player picked now, never played a test match, and he was only around, you know, five or seven or eight years ago. So uh, you've got to judge the time you're born very accurately in order to have a good career. (laughs) So this definitely shows like Indian batting strength is uh, you know better than than ever, uh, not ever, but in recent times, and Australian batting strength uh, is very dependent uh, in, in in the Test format in Smith and Warner because last time Australia was in India, Virat Kohli did not play the last Test, and we've spoken about that also at length in this podcast with you that Anil Kumble and uh, Rahane back Kuldeep Yadav, and India won that series. But uh, still, winning a test at home without Kohli speaks volume against a very competitive Australian unit. But Australia looks like uh, have their work cut out to do the same for a full series without Steve Smith here. When you look at the runs he scored last time round, Australia only won that series 2-0. And India could have won either of the first couple of test matches, although Australia probably could have forced one of the draws to a win as well. But that last series, Smith scored, I think, more runs in, in an Australia-India series than any batsman has done before or since, knocking Bradman off the top spot. And Warner got plenty as well. So you take those runs out of that series four years ago and India would have won it. So that's how strong the um, the, the loss is. And, you know, um, it's it should be mentioned, it probably it, that's the least of the tragedy of it, but the death of Philip Hughes, um, one of the great tragedies of, of Australian sport, I also think that had he still been alive, he'd be a fixture in the side. I think he was going to be an all-time um, high-standard player, verging on a great player. So, um, you know, there's we, we don't have, um, I suppose, the, the huge population to be um, having a, such enormous depth at all times. And hopefully well, there's a few um, talented players on the rise. There are certainly some players that have been talked about, players like Sanger and Edwards and others who have been talked about as potentially um, – uh, top class, top class players to come. They haven't yet done enough at the shield level to indicate that that's a certainty. Let's talk about uh, the Perth surface. It's going to be it's it's going to be the first Test match in this new venue. And Vaca, the previous location, was known for one of the bounciest and paciest of surfaces. So it looks like that's the kind of surface we are in store for. And if India does go with four paces, you think that means? advantage Khwaja because Khwaja, you know, has still known to be found out on uh, spin and Ashwin if he doesn't play this match. You think this could be the opening Usman Khwaja is looking for? A two-tier question you can 
answer the surface first and then uh, waver into Khwaja? Yeah, with the surface, I hope it's fast and bouncy. And I don't say that because I think that's um, because I, I think they should prepare that wicket to help Australia win. I think that world test cricket is better when Perth has a fast, bouncy wicket because we want variety in, in test match surfaces. And there are so many low, flat surfaces around the world. In my opinion, a good Perth wicket when it's nice and bouncy produces some of the most attractive cricket to watch. And I'd say that whether Australia were going to win or lose. Back in the days when the West Indies were the best, we still produced a fast Perth wicket. I remember one year, one of the first test matches I remember, Australia getting bowled out to 71 um, in Perth against the West Indies and being lucky to get to 71. Um, so, um, I think that the, the whacker pitch in the last decade wasn't always as fast as bou- and as bouncy as, as it could have been. It was starting to regain some of that in, la- in the last few years. There was a lot of concern that the new stadium with a drop-in wicket was not going to have that same bounce, and I think that they've really worked hard to to get that bounce in there. So I'd, I'd love it to be, um, you know, like the Wacker of old, and I think it does give Kawaja um, his best opportunity, although he, you know, he did look ordinary getting dismissed by Ashwin in the first test, but he did also play an amazing innings against the spinners in the UAE recently. So I, I think that um, regardless of the conditions at the moment, Kawaja is the one that I regard as our best batsman, and, yeah, it's a massive opportunity for him to get some runs in Perth, and we really need him to. Uh, and that being said, let's uh, let's talk about Ishan Sharma. He's become a different customer since working with Jason Gillespie in his uh, stint uh, in the English county. And uh, you've, we are seeing results now in England and definitely uh, his improved wrist action. I'm not that technical, but he's definitely a tough customer. He was always known to bowl these long spells and was uh, creating these situations when his... Uh, his counterparts or his colleagues would get the wickets, but now he's among wickets. So uh, how big of a factor he's going to be in this long series? Because he's, he loves these contests and he's a supremely fit guy. He can bowl these long spells. Well, I think Jason Gillespie should renounce his Australian citizenship. The, 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 the work he's done <laughs> with um, Ishant Sharma, I, to me, just looks like a new bowler. Uh, I thought he was fantastic in England in the winter, uh, in our winter. And I, think, I thought he bowled really well in the first test match in Adelaide. And I think that as long as he doesn't get carried away with the bounce in Perth, as, as people have often done in the past, that um, I think he can, um, you know, if he, if he just bowls that fourth stump line, aiming to hit the top of the off stump, doesn't overdo the short ball and keeps accurate, then I think he'll be a really difficult bowler. They did an article in the Australian, one of the Australian newspapers just recently before the first test match saying that statistically he's probably the worst bowler ever to bowl in Australia. Um, and he's... he's record in Australia prior to this series was absolutely abominable and if he hadn't made that change that he seemed to have done in the start of um, the start of this year then I wouldn't have wanted him to be here if I was an Indian fan but now I, as I say he just seems to be totally reinvented he's now a tall fast bowler bowling accurately and getting some movement rather than a tall fast bowler bowling with um, without accuracy bowling waywardly and getting hammered everywhere so He's gone from someone that I regarded as a weakness in the Indian side to one of their greatest strengths. So it's all credit to him. Yeah, he's definitely the leader of the pack. I mean, even the Kohli and Dhoni always called him that. But now it's nice when the leader is among wickets. So let's uh, switch to the other guy, Muhammad Shami. I mean, he's a wicket taker, but he bleeds runs. I'm not convinced, uh, you know, that he's solved, you know, uh, both ingredients because you need to be economical. But he does get the breakthroughs. So how important is he, in your opinion, for India to, you know, maintain this, uh, you know, this lead and just uh, go to the next level from here? Um, I think that he's um, he's probably the, of the the three fast bowlers that were in the first test match, That the one that I would think is of the third level importance. But that's still very important because 
um, if he starts going for runs and if he's, if he's not effective, then um, that can really harm the Indian side. But um, if, you know, if they needed to make a change, then I think he'd be the one at this stage that would probably get excluded and that maybe they'd bring in Kumar or, um, or Yadav. Although I, I rate Shami pretty highly. I think that he's um, um, a very decent, solid bowler um, who, you know, I can't be too critical of what he did in Adelaide because he, he picked up several wickets. So, yeah, I, I think it just goes to the fact that um, in years gone by, I thought Shami was the best bowler in the Indian side. Um, I, I still think he's probably as good as he was and that he's now probably the, the weakest bowler of the of the Premier uh, fast bowling unit. And I just think that shows how much the Indian bowling is. So that actually is not a bad thing because when, when you have someone like Bumrah bowling and a lot of hype surrounding this young lad, of course, the action is little, you know, uh, it's like Ernest Gulbis forehand in tennis. Like this is a very different action. Uh, and he walks into this run-up, but uh, a lot of critics uh, love the variety he can produce. And uh, he's definitely someone, you know, who he maintains his uh, fitness. He People are saying he could be one of the best bowlers to come out of India since Kapil Dev. Uh, mm-hmm. That's it's a huge compliment. Uh, what's your early take on Bumrah and how impressed are you on what he produced in Adelaide? I think he can be better than Kapil Dev. I think he can be the best Indian fast bowler of all time. Um, and that's too early to say, obviously. Um, it may not transpire, but this early stage, I think that's a possibility. And I think if you look at some of the Indian bowlers that, you know, their top line bowlers of yesteryear, of Javagal Srinath and Zahir Khan and others, I think that um, potentially um, Boomer is better than them. So uh, let's just see how he goes. He was okay in the Adelaide Test match, not quite as good as he might have been, but um, he'll be all the better for the run. If he takes advantage of this bouncy surface that we're expecting. He could be a real handful in Perth and for the rest of the series. And uh, what what do you think of the rest of the surface in the series? Because the talk is already, you know, Perth is going to be pretty bouncy. Uh, traditionally, Mel- uh, Melbourne has been a tough hunting ground for Indians. Brisbane was pretty tough as well, but Brisbane is not part of the schedule this time. So what do we expect as the series, you know, unfolds? By the time this podcast or this show is aired, uh, we would be getting ready for the Boxing Day Test match. Well, it's going to be a very interesting thing to watch the surface of the MCG because last summer... Um, the Ashes game in the MCG was the worst pitch I've ever seen in Australia. It was diabolical. It was so flat and so it meant led to such insipid, boring cricket. It was a disgrace and the MCG is on notice because uh, if they produce um, another surface like that, then they will cop an almighty whack from the International Cricket Council. And if they keep on producing surfaces like that, they'll actually get barred from um, um, having a test pitch. So I think that that we'll see a much bouncier Perth surface, um, Melbourne surface, because Cricket Australia, you know, it would be an absolute disaster if the MCG wasn't able to host a test match. So uh, the broken arm that I mentioned that Nick Maddinson received from Jai Richardson in the Sheffield Shield match, that was on the MCG. So hopefully we're going to see the MCG pitch, maybe a little bit like the Adelaide Oval pitch that we saw earlier in the summer. As for Sydney, I've just been watching the Sheffield Shield game that was just played there. It's, um, it's concerning me that it wasn't spinning all that much. It wasn't all that lively. Um, it wasn't as bad as Melbourne was last year, but it's kind of not the sort of pitch that would, as, as things stand, produced, produce attractive cricket. Um, so uh, I hope that they can rectify that and that we can get more of an old-fashioned SCG pitch, but at this stage I've got a concern about it. Uh, so let's, let's change focus to some, another great series that just concluded in the UAE where the Black Caps were victorious. 
and uh, the two you know very solid tests and especially uh Pakistan is pretty mercurial but the, that's the stereotype a lot of people believe they are not mercurial it's just the stability they have lost in uh, legends like Yunus and Misbah but uh, credit to New Zealand to not only winning but winning the, against Pakistan or at least Pakistan's home conditions in a very long time and uh, does Kane Williamson get enough credit as member of the big four of the cricket's batting um well he probably always struggles for credit because New Zealand unfortunately when they play test matches they tend not to be as high profile as as others and and sadly they are they are playing fewer test matches now as well but the New Zealand cricket board recognizes that um they have to play fewer test matches in order to um to pay the bills so that they've got to sacrifice test matches to play more tour ball games so as a result he probably doesn't quite get the um the profile that he that he otherwise would um but you know i mean he's coming now closing in on virat kohli at the top of the rankings he played a crucial innings in that third test match when new zealand were looking like they were gone and um it was his century that was the 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 main reason that they then um got themselves into um uh a pretty decent position along with was it nicholson who got runs as well um and um so yeah i think that with um along with virat kohli he's probably regarded as the, as one of the two best batsmen in the world at the moment given that steve smith out how big is this again uh, in terms of you know winning in uh, foreign conditions you know like we talk about the subcontinental batsmen the biggest challenge is to score in south africa australia england and even new zealand so i'm sure the the inverse applies for guys like smith or williamson to go in uae or india and not only you know score heaps of runs but also be you know a big factor in your team's uh, performance to you know get over the hump and get get the series win ah uh, it's enormous um you know australia has had terrible time um a terrible time in the uae um and hasn't looked like winning uh, a series over there so the fact that new zealand could do it um is all to their credit i said nicholson i was meaning nichols before in terms of the the guy that had the partnership with uh kane williamson i'm not sure what i was thinking so uh look i think that New Zealand must be extremely proud especially given that in in the th- in the two test matches that they won that in both instances it almost looked like the match was gone that Pakistan looked certain to win um and New Zealand um came home strongly and, and got the win the only thing I'll say in Australia's defense is that in this recent series and the series in um 4 years ago they lost all of the tosses and Pakistan got to bat first in in all of their games which which kind of makes a difference but I'm sure any Pakistani uh listeners would say well yeah um would would exchange that for actually being able to play at home so you know you you you're getting to play us on a neutral ground so don't get don't complain too much so yeah fantastic performance by by new zealand against a pakistani side that i think's pretty good hmm. and let's talk about two of the pakistani bowlers uh, of course yasir shah came came back and got a lot of wickets and he's the fastest i think man to join the 200 club and then there's the medium pacer mohammad abbas who's uh, been touted as one of the future great bowlers by none other than Dale Stain so your thoughts on those two bowlers um yeah well i think that um yasir shah has knocked off australia's clary grimmett for the the fastest number of um test matches to get to 200 wickets and to, to be fair to yasir shah he actually has taken his wickets even more quickly really than grimmett because grimmett bowled a lot more overs um than than shah did although grimmett did have a better average so i mean clary grimmett is one of the greats of australian cricket um my new zealand friends would like me to point out at this point I'm sure that he's actually a New Zealander and he played for Australia because back then New Zealand didn't play test cricket so he had had to find a game somewhere 
But he's one of the all-time great bowlers, um, along with O'Reilly and Shane Warne that we've had in terms of leg spinners. Um, so for, for Yastia Shah to knock off a record of his is um, is a tremendous achievement. Um, and for Mohammed Abbas, I mean, he had a little bit of a, a, a disappointing um, series this time round. And prior to that, though, his record at test level was in was incredible that uh, you looked at the best bowling averages of all time and everyone else at the top of the list played 100 plus years ago when the game was very different and suddenly Mohammed Abbas's name was in the middle of that. Um, that will have changed now because he didn't have such a good series against New Zealand, but that's one of the challenges that you have to face at test level. I love him because I love the fact that he's not that quick. And Pakistani... Go on. Sorry, so Pakistani squad has been announced for South Africa and Mohammed Amir finds his way back. And again, the way he was dropped uh, after you know not performing uh, in, in the earlier series was uh, cited by the selectors that you know he needs to work on his form. And uh, isn't that too knee-jerk uh, that his, he's com- coming back this soon or that was expected with a player of his caliber that they wouldn't keep him out too long? I suppose the other issue is that it's a big difference playing in the UAE versus playing in South Africa. That in the UAE, you really only need to go into a match with one or two fast bowlers, whereas in South Africa, you may well need to go in there with four and you're picking a squad rather than just probably an 11. So um, I think that Mohamed Amir is always someone that has to come into consideration. Um, I think that uh, in prospect... He still can be a very um, fine bowler at the top level, and, and you know, hopefully, he's done a bit of work and um, and main, and returns to, to something approaching his best in South Africa. All right, so the lefty bowlers in the world right now, Trent Bolt has to be mentioned. But just like uh, his captain Kane Williamson, you, you think he's again one of the premier bowlers in the world, but doesn't get uh, the same mention as Rabada, Cummins, and maybe Stark, or you think he's definitely tier two in terms of you know overall package uh, in the red ball cricket? Um, I think. He, about three or four years ago, was right at the top of, um, of bowlers in, in, in test cricket. And I think that subsequent to that, he has probably um, slightly dropped back. So whether he's tier one or tier two, it's hard to, to, to sort of know. But I'd say that, um, you know, his overall average 28, um, you know, oh, yeah, probably does put him just below that top echelon. Whether Pat Cummins is in that top echelon, I think he probably needs to do more at test level to prove that he is. For me, um, you know, the, the, the very top echelon is is still kind of the South Africans, that um, Rabada, Stain and Philander um, are just phenomenal. And I think they're the they're the absolute out-and-out superstars of, of world cricket at the moment, that Mohamed Abbas um, was placing himself in that category. We'll have to see if he can continue to do that. But they're the ones that, um, if I was picking my um, you know, best side in the world, those are the ones I'd be looking at. All right. So as we wrap up this conversation, we have less than a few minutes, uh, like four or five minutes left. Uh, let's talk about uh, a quick preview of the World Cup. We'll be talking more at length as we are like slightly you know, less than six months away. Who are some of the contenders besides uh, England and India? Is there anyone else in your opinion? Of course, anything can happen in this format. But... Uh, are those two teams the two top favourites? And then who follows, in your opinion, as far as solid units go, like the balanced sides and uh, whatnot? I think definitely those are the two top teams. There's no, there's no question that that's where the, the money would be would be heading. As you point out, though, it's a strange tournament where you, this is going to be a particularly unusual one where there's going to be so many preliminary games and then um, bang, bang, you play a semi and you play a final that you could be uh, undefeated in your... Um, in all of the games you play over, you know, 10 matches or whatever it is or nine matches and then have one bad day in the semi-final that can all go wrong. So 
it's very hard to predict the winner, but I think that those are the two favourites. I think South Africa probably deserve to be um, not far behind. I, I was pretty impressed by what I've seen with them, and I think they are. I think they're developing at a good speed as well. That they seem to be um, uh, finessing and, and refining their squad. Um, beyond that, well. Australia, you've always got to mention them, given that they've got um, such an amazing record in, in, in World Cups. At this juncture, you'd say that <laughs> it's hard to see them winning. But I suppose if they do happen to, you know, if Smith and Warner are back and firing and you, if, if Maxwell gets his um, sort of game together, um, you know, they've got some, some real power there. And, and their bowling attack, in theory, should be very good in English conditions as well. Pakistan would be objecting to me not mentioning them yet, given that they won the last major tournament to be held in England. So they've obviously um, got to be a chance as well. And I think that's where you'd expect the winners to come from um, because, you know, you start to name too many players, teams, you've ended up naming all 10. <laughs> no, you're right. I mean, the last time this kind of a format was held in World Cup was 92 World Cup, the Benson Hedges World Cup in Australia. And Pakistan, you know, snuck snuck in. They, they could have been eliminated. If most people remember, there was a game... I think uh, Douglas Lewis game or the split points with England, and then from there on, you know, they beat Australia, and then they won the cup with Inzamamul Haq and a lot of you know cameos from Wasim Akram and Imran Khan. So yeah, you never know in this kind of a format when each team is going to play each team, and it's a six seven week long tournament, so anything can happen. But going in, uh, I, mean, I also echo your sentiment that India and England are, are top dogs, but I just think England has the most balanced side. They do be, they do bat too too deep. And uh, Ambati Raidu and some of the guys in the Indian middle order and Amazonis form, to me, a little concerning. Uh, there will be heavy reliance on top three in India with Shikhar Dhawan, Sharma and Kohli. Your thoughts on that? I, I think that the India should be looking to, potentially looking to the future. That I think Christy Shaw must come into consideration for the tournament. Um, and I think that, um, you know, Richard Punt um, should come into consideration as well. I don't think that you win these World Cups by playing old players who are, um, if they're not absolutely at their best, or older players if they're not absolutely at their best. So I think India should be fearless when it comes to selection and picking some of these younger players would probably be the right thing to do. Uh, in terms of that 92 World Cup, to be fair to Duckworth Lewis, it wasn't in then. It came in shortly um, shortly after that as a result of some of the um, debacles that occurred with rain in that World Cup, the famous one where... South Africa, I think, required 22 off 13 and they lost two overs due to rain and, and their target wasn't reduced at all and they suddenly required 22 off one in the semi-final. So, Duckworth Lewis, which I love, came in as a result of some of the problems of, of that World Cup. So, Paul, thanks for doing this on a very short note. We ate up all the time. The conversation was so good. So, there's no tennis talk this time, but thanks for stepping up and I think the cricket talk was very rich and uh, very relevant as the two uh, teams uh, are about to start the test match pretty soon. So, we'll have you again uh, during the series and then lead up to the World Cup because the big show is less than six months away. And let's uh, hope when we next time talk, the, the series is evenly poised and Australia has at least some say because India, uh, as far as your predictions go, are uh, you still saying India 3-0? I've been saying India 4-0. Um, so I hope I'm wrong on that score. Um, and as far, as far as the tennis is concerned, I'm placed in I'm going to, um, four night successions in a row of the Australian Open coming up. So hopefully get to see Federer um, in maybe what might be his last Australian Open. Ah, great. So maybe we'll have you on the tennis podcast uh, weighing in your opinions as a fan uh, when we air some of those episodes from Melbourne. <laughs>